0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Ariel Kay, founder of Parachute. Parachute is a vertically integrated high end betting company. That is designed in LA manufactured in Italy and delivered directly to you in this episode you'll learn how Ariel saw the opportunity to create a brand embedding her approach to an omnichannel strategy and managing her stores and business during COVID without further ado here's Arielle Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm doing really well. Thank you. So let's start from the very beginning of your career. What attracted you to consumer brands?
1: You know, I worked in advertising for many years, um, which I loved. I was on the strategic side of creative. I was thinking about big picture ideas um, consumer insights, and after many years of that experience, I found myself craving something more tangible. I really wanted to create a brand and a product that people could really look at, hold, point to, and use, and see it add value in in someone's life. And so that was, I think, <laughs> what initially. But also, I'm a customer. I'm a consumer. You know, I, brands they take on a life of their own, and. You know, when you love a brand and when you get connected to a brand, that's such an interesting, special relationship. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons that I was, I think, initially interested. But but yeah, those are some of the early kind of reasons, I think, that I left the world I was in and, and pursued um, building its consumer brand.
0: What was the insight that led you to founding Parachute?
1: I would say there were a few, but key ones were, well, everyone sleeps. You spend a third of your life in bed. So sleep impacts everything, your health, happiness, productivity, all of the, all of the things that, you know, make us who we are. And then, you know, the big one was that I realized that I had when I asked friends and, you know, whoever, what sheets they slept on, no one could tell me what brand. People could tell me what store they had gone to shop in. You know, I went to this department store. I went to this, whatever. No one could say, I, I love this brand. And that to me was a sign that there was an opportunity to build a brand within this category.
0: With that being said, how did you even approach the competitive stack or like where Parachute maybe lied compared to other brands or just other sheets?
1: The idea for Parachute really came to be in the end of 2012. Early 2013, I left my job to focus on Parachute full-time and we launched 2014. So if you go back in time and try to remember what brands were out there, there were really none, you know? I mean, people knew of, from a high-end and like super premium perspective, there were brands like Frette and Sfera, the more legacy, like high-end heritage brands. And then, you know, people were shopping At Bed Bath & Beyond and at Macy's and, you know, kind of the more bigger box department stores and retailers, but there weren't any other direct to consumer businesses. So we were really first to market actually in terms of, you know, creating this new type of shopping experience for textiles. So with that said, it was pretty limited.
0: So, when you first decided that you wanted to start Parachute, what were like the first steps to founding your company? How did you approach sourcing? How did you think about material? How did you think about the brand as well?
1: You know, I mentioned I had been, I'd spent, you know, almost a decade working in marketing and, and advertising. And so, you know, the brand part was very kind of clear to me early on. I would say the sourcing part and the the production part and, you know, kind of everything operations and supply chain focus was completely out of my comfort zone. Um, You know, I had never worked in retail before. I had never you know, worked in textiles. So the first thing I did actually, when I decided that this was going to be my job and I was going to do this full time was I went to Europe and I visited 15 factories. I approached finding those factories, getting some introductions and some kind of like guiding um, suggestions of how to find factories from people who were more industry focused, but I was using kind of Google, to be honest, to find a lot of the factories. Um, but I knew that it would be very important for me to really understand the whole manufacturing process from start to finish in order to, you know, really get to the next step. So that was phase one. And after that trip, I mean, the wheels are really turning. I like, you know, had a whole new understanding of what the brand could look like and what the product, you know, would feel like and left my time in New York and moved to LA to really get things started.
0: Got it. What was that like, placing your first order, convincing the manufacturers almost to take a chance on you, right? What was that like?
1: It's funny because the manufacturers, you know, reminded me and still mention it from time to time that, you know, I showed up with a suitcase full of samples, you know, this i big idea that I was going to start this linen brand and they were like, okay, we'll we'll take the meeting, you know, nice American girl, like, sure, you know, like, we'll see how that goes. And none of them expected, you know, the brand to have the type of success that we now have today or to even, you know, I think place a second order, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, our our first order was relatively small. You know, I had limited resources. I started with a very small assortment. So it was sheets and duvet covers and pillowcases and two fabrics in three colors. I only sold queen and king size. I mean, I was very limited in terms of the assortment because I, I knew that I had to figure out if this was something that people even wanted. But I paid for everything up front. I mean, it was, you know, I, I had to really... Convince them <laughs> that that it was worth um, you know spending a small amount of time you know getting me on the production line.
0: Totally. And so once you source your material and you have the brand um, element figured out, like what was the launch strategy when you were able to launch? And you launched in 2014, right?
1: Yeah, we launched January 2014. So prior to working in advertising, I worked in PR. So I was a huge believer in PR as part of our launch strategy and truly our only launch strategy. I mean this was also pretty early in kind of the Instagram days. I mean, Instagram wasn't the way it was now in terms of, you know, how you can launch a brand. So really our only strategy was press. You know, I knew from my own experience how critical launch press is, you know, how much, you know, media partners like to cover launch press. And so I hired an agency to work with us, you know, basically from day one of launch and and to really get the story out there. And that really was extremely successful. I tell people all the time to never underestimate what those kind of stories can do for you. But that first week of launch, we were featured in maybe five, six stories, you know, which brought Attention to other publishers and it definitely kind of snowballed, and, and we ended up getting quite a bit of press and sales just started rolling in.
0: That's awesome. That's super cool. And how did you pick your distribution channels growing up when you first started? Were you only selling through your website? Or were you th- selling through other online channels?
1: We only sold through our website, well, except for Zola, which we started partnering with in 2015, I believe. We only sold through our own website until this past January when we did a collaboration with Crate & Barrel. So we've been owned and operated um, since day one, essentially. And that was something that I really felt was important, partially because I wanted to know who our customers were and also because I wanted to be able to control the narrative and the brand experience. And I felt very protective of the brand and, you know, knowing exactly what our customers could expect from start to finish. So we opened our own stores and have had a pretty successful retail strategy as well, but it was only recently that we felt it made sense to move into other channels.
0: So you never decided to go on Amazon? That was never part of the plan?
1: No, that was never part of the plan.
0: Got it. So you were very much um, all about control and controlling the brand and controlling the narrative. And really actually just focusing on almost like direct-to-consumer throughout, whether it's online or in your retail stores.
1: Yeah, exactly. And our retail stores became a really successful part and important part of our strategy, partially because this is a category where historically 90% of purchases were made offline. So these types of products for a very, very long time, only really, you know, in, in the past 10 years, people were shopping for these products online at all. So, you know, I knew that there was a customer that would prefer to see and touch and feel and have that kind of inspired experience offline.
0: When did you decide to open your first retail store how did you decide to pick that location?
1: So we opened our first retail store in 2016. In 2015, we had done a small pop-up. Our first retail store was in Venice, so it was our pop-up. We actually found a location, um, and this was sort of the dream that I had, that we found a location that was basically the front of our office. So we found a place that was commercial, and we built our office in the back. And as a result, we were able to really engage with our customers and actually listen to our customers. the The store was and the office were divided by you know kind of a pony wall, so there was you could hear the conversations in the store happening over the wall. So people would come in and say, you know, what kind of sheets do you have? You know, what do they feel like? You know, and you'd have these many focus groups all day long. Um, you know, with us kind of behind that that mirror, and it was awesome. So. That was our first store. We decided, you know, we really wanted to be in neighborhoods. So places that weren't, we didn't want to start in malls, although now we have started to open more kind of shopping destinations and shopping centers, but we really wanted to be in the neighborhood. We wanted to be next door to your favorite ice cream shop, across the street from your favorite restaurant, you know, places that were lively day and night. Um, I just had this feeling that, you know, being part of that, like the fabric and the culture of, you know, a neighborhood would felt right for being a home store.
0: When you're first thinking about Parachute back in 2012, 13, 14, who was your ideal customer?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I think for me, it was myself. (laughs) And, you know, as we kind of grew as a team, um, we were our target customers in so many ways. I mean, that has obviously changed and evolved, but, you know, it was myself and my friends, um, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I wanted higher quality products. I didn't want to pay, you know, an extremely high price for them. I felt like, you know, that, that didn't make sense, but, you know, I would say, you know, people that were kind of entering these initial kind of milestones where you're starting to invest in your home more. So, you know, people that are starting a family or moving in with a significant other, or, you know, whatever it might be, where all of a sudden the shift is in terms of spending habits is, you know, completely outside the home to you know let's start a home together because you know we really wanted to be part of that initial growth so that you know we could grow with our customers we always have talked about being a brand that grows with the customers not a brand that you grow out of and also i mean you know this is also kind of i feel like a, a shift where people were staying single longer and you know you know really focusing on careers and having more disposable income and so i think there's just a period of time where all of a sudden you know whether you're moving in with a significant other or just moving into your first place you know without roommates you know it's just kind of moments where All of a sudden, you're like, wait, this is a space that I feel really proud of and that I want to prioritize comfort and taking care of myself and investing in products that, you know, bring me joy in that way.
0: Apart from being, as you said, like a brand, since there wasn't uh, brands in the category beforehand, were there certain elements of your brand when you're thinking about designing what the brand would look like that you thought, all right, this is actually very different to how other manufacturers were behaving?
1: What was happening in the market, you know, especially when we were first getting started, was that there were a lot of these furniture brands that were selling textiles sort of as just upsell add-ons. They weren't the focus of their collections, um, which means that quality was sort of whatever. And, you know, they weren't products that were taking like a front seat from a style perspective either. So they weren't being thought of as like aesthetic drivers, if you will. So we just approached the category in a different way by thinking like, you know, how important are textiles? You know, how do they impact your space and how can they add value to your life?
0: How did you also think, maybe from the early days up until now, organic growth first paid? And I know you had that launch, that big PR campaign launch, but how did you just approach the organic side of things? And then also as well, like advertising just in general?
1: So we didn't do really any paid marketing for about the first year and a half after we launched. So we really focused on that organic growth and then, you know, all of the earned kind of stories. And then our first strategy was really to then promote and put dollars behind our stories and that, you know, on various channels. So um, we were pretty slow in the paid marketing ramp up. Obviously, you know, today that's much different, but early on, you know, we really... We were really focusing on that organic growth portion because it was just working. And I felt like, again, for a brand, um, you know, people love discovering brands and, you know, they love to kind of stumble upon that article that, you know, tells them about this new cool thing that they should know more about. And, you know, the word of mouth component is also really powerful. You know, you're so much more likely to buy products that your friends recommend than anything else. And so. We really wanted to emphasize those experiences versus spending a ton of money, especially in the early days. But that quickly changed, you know, as we got bigger and we started investing in kind of in in many different channels, um, you know, on Facebook and then on Instagram. And we started doing some podcasts. We early on tried to diversify our marketing mix so that we never were too dependent on any one given channel.
0: How do you think about launching like new products and launching new SKUs? What's that like?
1: We think about it, you know, our product timeline from new product to launch is about a year. So we're planning way ahead. Um, But I think, you know, starting in the early days, you know, we started with the bedroom and bedding and, you know, kind of pillows and, duvet inserts and all the things that can make your bed cozy and then the natural next progression for us felt like bath and so we've sort of taken this approach moving from room to room and looking at you know what are the natural extensions of what we do today and and how can they feel very cohesive as we expand so in today we're in almost every room of the home you know we've expanded to kids products and tabletop and decor we have rugs window treatments i mean we really have a pretty wide assortment it's still focused and curated, but we definitely have a lot of products. But, you know, our product team and our design team and our our merchandising team, you know, work together to kind of think about that strategy. In the early days, it was really about, okay, so, you know, now people trust us in the bedroom. You know, we've proven to be, you know, trusted and that, you know, products are high quality. And, you know, we started getting requests early on for Bath and for other types of products. And so that's also a big part of kind of our guiding you know, how we think about growth is is thinking about what customers want.
0: What was the reaction for COVID? I know you have, I think, 10 stores nationally. What was kind of going through your mind when February, March last year was happening?
1: I think like most people, it was pretty scary (laughs) panic. You know, people talk about, you know, all of the uncertainty. I mean, we definitely had no idea how this was going to play out. So, you know we had to make a lot of quick decisions, you know, first off, of course, closing our stores, moving into remote work environment. We made some decisions about, you know, we stopped spending on marketing. I mean we we decided to be very conservative and to be really, you know cautious in terms of how we approach growth. I will say that we as a category, you know, the home category in general fared really well during the past year. Um, you know we were very lucky to be one of the few categories that. Um, saw accelerated growth um, during COVID because people were home and looking to refresh their spaces. But those early days were were pretty scary. I mean, I I feel like I can still remember the way things smelled. I mean, it's just like it was such a incredibly intense few weeks of just not knowing what to do, like thinking through scenarios of you know bad, worse, and catastrophic. I mean, really, you know, thinking about all the work that we had done and, you know, was it going to disappear? So it was um, scary for sure.
0: Certainly scary. From that moment until early March up until now, how have you had to pivot part of your business and Parachute?
1: So we made some quick choices, you know, especially, you know, so we closed our stores um, in mid-March as the world shut down. And, you know, one of the things that we quickly tried to figure out was how could we recreate that experience in store digitally and online for our customers. So we launched our chat with a stylist program, which we had actually soft launched in the fall, um, but we put a lot more resources behind it to improve that program and to make sure that we had enough team members and stylists to keep up with demand. But that was one thing that we did in order to create this really intimate shopping experience um, for our customers online. We also fast tracked different shopping services like buy online, pick up in store and curbside checkout so that, you know, once stores reopened, we could launch those programs. um, And those have also proven to be very successful and appreciated by our customers. And then, you know, just moving into a remote work environment. I mean, we had to create a lot of internal processes and, you know, think through how we were going to, you know, stay connected and, you know, continue making creative and, you know, all of these things that we just had never experienced before. I mean, we've never been a remote organization. So...
0: Moving back, as things begin to open up here, what's the future of, of Parachute? How are you thinking about mixing, you know, online, the online, and also retail?
1: Sure. I mean, e-com will always be our, you know, largest growth lever and and channel, but we're really excited about retail. We are continuing to invest in our retail strategy. You know, obviously we took a pause in 2020 and and didn't, you know, sign leases and and we were, you know, kind of holding to see how things would play out. But now we are hitting the ground running. Um, We've got new stores opening this year, which I'm very excited about. And we plan on continuing to invest in retail as a channel for us. I mean, you know retail pre-covid was more than just a place to transact it was a place where we felt like our community could gather we were hosting workshops and speaker series and pop-ups and you know the goal was really to allow our customers a place to get inspired and to learn about our products and to touch and feel and to be part of you know the neighborhoods and and all of that so we're looking forward to a time where we can pick up where we left off in terms of programming but But yeah, you know, our, our retail sales have, have truly bounced back and we're seeing a very high intent customer that's coming into the store and shopping, you know, foot traffic still might be down, but the customers that are coming in at the shop.
0: Has retail always been, or, or, or has it ever been a point of discovery for the brand? Or are you finding that it's actually been more of like a point of like retention, or as you say, like a community that already are familiar with the brand online?
1: It's definitely both. I mean, it's certainly a place for discovery. I mean, we look to be in high traffic areas and places where both, you know, locals and tourists hang out. I mean, we want people to be discovering us. You know, there's truly no better way for a customer to discover our brand than in a place where they can touch and feel our products and see the breadth and depth of our assortment, you know, right in front of them. So we love the first time shopper that comes into the store. However, we also have, you know, a customer that, is looking for us and is, you know, once they discover us and see that they have a store, they want that initial experience. And then people that, you know, of course are are coming back and, and shopping and popping in to see our new collection once we launch things and, you know, are, are looking to pick up gifts and, you know, grab an extra towel or whatever it is. Um, so I would say it's both, but the beauty of store is that it's a very interactive billboard. And so, you know, we want people to, we want people to see, it's also part of the reason why most of our stores have been in neighborhoods where, you know, you could be eating dinner across the street at 10 p.m. and walk across the street and peer in the store and see our products. I mean, we want people to be engaging with our stores even when they're not open.
0: Do you have plans to open more stores?
1: Yeah, hopefully opening many. We're opening many. <laughs>
0: Now choosing those locations for new stores, is that based off of customer data of where customers are living or like how do you actually make those choices? Do you also are thinking about, you know what, maybe I'll do a pop-up first as a temporary solution just to see if there is something here and then maybe go permanent later on?
1: We definitely look at customer data. We like to be, you know, where our customers are. We think that's a great place to get settled. Um, you know, again, we talked about earlier kind of word of mouth, you know, if if we know that there are, we have a lot of loyal customers in the neighborhood and they can tell their friends that, you know, oh wait, my favorite store just opened, you know, to buy sheets, you know, you got to go check it out. That's a great way for news to spread that we're in town. But, you know, we actually haven't taken the pop-up route. You know, it's something that we talk about often. And actually we were thinking about, we originally had plans to do a few pop-ups in 2020, um, which ended up not happening because of COVID. But one of the things, you know, we did this partnership or we're in the middle of the partnership with Crate and Barrel and it's been really fun to, you know, anecdotally hear which stores, you know, have been really successful with our partnership and, you know, and because that can help guide us to different locations for future stores. So, I mean, we're looking at customer data whenever we can get it. It helps us think through where we should be. But we also, you know, we definitely want to be in cool up and coming neighborhoods with, you know, where we feel like People have, um, are buying houses and moving, and we want to make it easy for our customers to shop.
0: That's really cool. How did you approach fundraising? Why did you decide to fundraise and raise VC dollars?
1: I didn't really know any other way to do it, to be perfectly honest at the time. When I started, I didn't have money that I had saved that I was able to kind of bootstrap with. I joined an accelerator program in 2013 um, before launch, which gave me capital to buy our first round of inventory. I had a bunch of friends, both in New York and LA, who had, were either working at startups or had started their own companies and gone through the, you know, raising money process and fundraising and so that was basically all I knew. I mean, I didn't I didn't know that there were alternative ways to get capital. You know, part of the accelerator that I was in was, you know, part of the value there was I got introduced to a lot of theses and angel investors and so when we launched and had this, you know, initial success and all of a sudden, you know, we were getting 30, 40 orders a day and we there was no way we were going to be able to keep up with demand. I did what I had to do, which was start talking to investors and get money, you know, so that we could continue to buy inventory and grow.
0: What were some of the biggest reasons why an investor said no to investing?
1: Oh my gosh, literally 1 million reasons. You know, people didn't like that I was a sole founder, that I didn't have a team, that I didn't have a technical partner. They didn't like the category that the, no one would ever repeat. They thought that the products were too expensive. I mean, you know, I think. What I soon realized was that, you know, your job as a founder is to convince people to invest in you and, you know, in many ways the job of an investor is to find reasons not to invest in you. So, there's a lot of holes to be poked in any business. I think ultimately, especially in the early days, you're looking for someone that you connect with, someone that believes in you as a founder and as an individual and believes in your vision and your drive and your motivation and is willing to take that risk, but You know, we had a lot of people that said that they were interested but wanted to wait until we had more traction, which, you know, is a nice puts you in a nice catch 22 position as you need capital to get that traction.
0: I had on Morgan, the founder of Public Goods, and he was saying how some of his pushback that he had was that he wanted to go cross category, wanted to be in multiple categories, which you are also multiple category. I'm just kind of interested to hear if you had any investor pushback of going cross category and not just sticking with one.
1: No, I mean, I think our plan was always to move cross category. And that was certainly part of our, you know, the very initial pitch deck that I created in the story that I told, you know, and I think actually, you know, I thought we would do betting for a year, then launch bath, you know, year two. I mean, I, my initial Perspective and strategy was to go much faster than we ended up going. But, you know, I think the vision for Parachute has always been to be a big home lifestyle brand. In order to do that, I felt extremely. Confident that I needed to be cross category. So, you know, if that was pushback, and I'm sure, you know, I've sort of blocked out some of those conversations. Um, I'm sure someone had that pushback, but, you know, I, then they weren't the right investor for me because, you know, you have to, you know, find people that believe in your vision and that want to help you achieve the goal through your eyes and and through your strategy.
0: Totally. It was just interesting hearing from Morgan because he said that a lot of investors pass because since you're going cross category, of course, there's more opportunity because of course you're selling uh, products in different categories, but strategics, or when they were thinking about the exit, strategics were looking at only one category companies, uh, typically, and not multi-category, which I thought just that was pretty interesting hearing his perspective on it.
1: Yeah, you can build a really big business in a single category. I think for us, we felt like introducing new categories would allow our, like would help our customers come back and then also help us be introduced to new customers. So it was a great acquisition and retention strategy. And we saw that you know, play out as, you know, even in our first year, as we introduce things like pillows, you know, and quilts and new products that, you know, that serve both of those purposes. So.
0: Cool. What's the vision for Parachute in the next five, 10 years?
1: We have so much opportunity. I think we've reached this exciting phase where there are so many directions that we could go. And so part of what we also are thinking about is how to pace our growth and how to be selective and and how to prioritize, you know, things like new category launches and retail stores and international expansion and all sorts of things. So, I mean, you know, the goal is to be your go-to ubiquitous for quality one-stop shop, like buy all your home things, all your cozy things, it's parachute all the way.
0: What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: So I'm going to change your question and answer what I'm reading now-ish. I actually just started Stacey Abrams' new book, Lead from the Outside. And so that'll be my professional pick. And then personal pick, um, I just read Untamed by Glennon Doyle and that was an incredible book. So I wish I had more time to read. I'll say that as well.
0: (laughs) Well, that's great. That's great. I don't think we've had anyone yet mention these two. So I'm excited to add these to the book list. That's awesome. What's the best piece of advice that you've received?
1: Go back to one of my tried and true, um, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. I think it's like just, you know, you've got to get out of your own way, you know, focus on progress, but you can, it's so easy, especially in the early days to get so caught up in every detail, every mistake, every, every, everything. And it can be distracting and it can be exhausting. So don't sweat the small stuff. Focus on the big picture things and the things that help you get there. Yeah, that's, a,
0: that's very very uh, yeah, that's very very good advice. And I actually I think that no one's no one's actually said on the show either. Great. That's awesome. Yeah, super original.
1: Trailblazer over here. <laughs>
0: Trailblazer, exactly. My final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders?
1: Have fun. Don't take it so seriously. You got to have fun.
0: Love it. Well, Ariel, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to chat with you.
0: And there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Ariel. You can follow her on Twitter at ArielK. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.